today's reading is from Acts 20, 17 through 38. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you? From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among you whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that I, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. The word of the Lord. Good morning. This table is really light, but it makes me look strong, doesn't it? It's like super, it's like Ikea light. Uh, welcome, and for those of you online, welcome. Um, are, are pastors trustworthy? Don't answer that. It could be very vulnerable. I, this survey just came out uh, that uh, went through the most trustworthy vocations and the most untrustworthy vocations. I found it very interesting. Uh, we'll do like David Letterman style, if you remember that. The five most trustworthy, uh, number one, or number five was police officers, number four, teachers, uh, number three, 
pharmacist. Uh, number two, uh, doctors. I think if I'm remembering correctly, doctors, 62% said the doctors are trustworthy or very trustworthy. And then number one, 17% higher than doctors. So well into the lead. Anybody got any guesses? Well into the lead for the most trustworthy vocation. Drum roll is nurses. Nurses. Any nurses? 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 All right. Well done. Uh, most untrustworthy, I immediately thought used car salesman. And, that was, that was, and I'm sorry if that is what you do. You probably have a really bad reputation for it's not you. Uh, but that was like way down. But there was two like well down at the bottom kind of tied. I think 10% of people found them trustworthy. Telemarketers and members of Congress. So if you're a telemarketer that's become a member of Congress, you're like the most <laughs> untrustworthy person on the planet. Uh, pastors, how did pastors fare? Are, are pastors trustworthy? You would probably be wise to answer which pastor. But as a group, are pastors trustworthy? Eh, not really. 34% of people found pastors trustworthy, which is really sad and completely understandable. If you've been paying attention over the last 10 or 15 years and the, the horrific uh, sexual abuse scandals in the Catholic Church and many Protestant denominations, it seems like every other day another knuckle-headed pastor is doing something ridiculous in the name of Jesus, and it just kind of makes me want to hang my head and cry a little bit. So I understand, and my hope a little bit, uh, as, we, as we do Jesus work here and follow the way of Jesus, as I do it and you do it, and even in this message today, my hope is that we'll get to a point where that question will be mute where people won't have to ask it, you know, because pastors and uh, those that they lead are so following Jesus that no one even has to ask that question. Amen to that? All right, so that's a little bit of what we're going to talk about today. We're in the series, we're getting to the end of it, uh, called On Mission, the book of Acts, kind of the second part to Luke's gospel. And we've been asking this question as we look at the early church, how can we, New Hope, in our space and time right here on this little hill in Portland, be a faithful church in America in 2023. So we've learned a lot of what we can do, that the earliest followers of Jesus did really well, and, and we've learned a few things what not to do uh, also. Uh, today, we're going to look at uh, a passage from Acts 20. Raylene just read it. And uh, if you have your Bibles on your phone or if you bring your Bible with you, which I, I would recommend... Uh, we sometimes have the passage up on the screen, but today I'll kind of be going through it from a, from a 30,000 foot view and in and out of it, so it'd be good to have it in front of you. Acts 20, 17 through 38 is the passage you just heard. Uh, let me give you a little context. Some, uh, it's important sometimes to know where we are in the world, and Paul, if you may remember, does three missionary journeys. That's the latter part of the book of Acts. He's taking the good news of King Jesus to Gentile believers. We're in his third missionary journey, so he's getting to the end of the line. Uh, he's heading towards Jerusalem. We assume from the, the emotion around the text that he knows he's probably going to die in Jerusalem. So he's getting to the end of his third missionary journey. He spent time in Ephesus. Then he, I think there's a map that will come up. He loops up to Macedonia and Greece, and Ephesus is where modern-day Turkey is. And then he loops back around and he would normally stop and say hi to the folks at Ephesus again because he was really close to them. But it says, Luke tells us that he was desperate to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. 
Luke, it's interesting also, if you look up at verse 13, this verse wasn't read. Uh, Luke says, he met us in Asos. And this is interesting because Luke, the historian, much of his gospel and parts of Acts, he's doing good historian work. He's interviewing people. He's like, you were there. Tell me what happened. He's writing it down. He's compiling it. In this case, Luke's telling us he was there. That's interesting. He's part of this voyage. He's with Paul right now. And he's a, a, a front row eyewitness to this speech that Paul gives, which is the only speech in all of Acts that he gives to believers. He gives every other speech to people outside the church. And these just weren't any believers. These are dearly loved believers. I think three times in this passage, tears are mentioned. It's a very emotional scene. This is essentially a farewell speech. Paul spent three years in the town of Ephesus, at the church of Ephesus, he knew them intimately and deeply. He loved them deeply. And this church had a profound influence on the early church. Most scholars think it was the most influential early church. So there's lots at stake in this speech. For Paul personally, he's saying goodbye for the last time. But also he's giving them kind of his final, here's what I need you to do. And as the church in Ephesus went, the church worldwide went. This is how influential they were. Timothy Paul's protege became the bishop of the church at Ephesus. So lots is at stake. If you're, if you're listening to Raylene, read it, and she did a really good job reading it, you'll feel it. You feel the emotion. You feel what's at stake, and it kind of draws you in. Also, we need to keep in context this idea of, of witness. If you go back to our first message, uh, Luke's main idea, his thesis for his book that he's writing to Theophilus is found in Acts 1.8. It says uh, the disciples, Jesus has, has gone to the cross. Jesus has risen. So they're, they're believers more so than ever. And they ask the logical question that any Jewish young man would ask, when's the kingdom really coming? They want to know, when do I get a throne? When do I get to reign? And Jesus says, it's going to be a while. Like, I will come back. He, he, he's very clear on that. But he essentially says the kingdom will come through you, through the church. He said, I'm going to send my spirit and fill you. And then this is what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my, here's the key word of the book of Acts. My witnesses, or the Greek word is martyr. You probably know that. See, you know Greek. Martyr. Be my witnesses. And then he goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the And we've been following that geographically. Now Paul's at the ends of the earth. We started in Jerusalem. So this is kind of the thesis. So we want to keep our eye on this idea of witness, which works and dovetails really well with Genesis 1, the very beginning of our story. We were made in the image of God to represent and reflect God. So that when people look at you, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you may not be this one, you may be kicking the tires and checking things out, and we're really glad that you're here. But many of you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus. So we should be, as the Holy Spirit fills our lives, People should be able to look at us and say that's an accurate representation of God. Or in Luke's vernacular, you're witnessing or you're testifying what God looks like. We go back to the story with Stephen, who was the first we call that double witness. He was testifying, and then he also was a literal martyr. He gave his life, if you remember that story. Stephen is showing us what it looks like to be a true witness, and Luke is doing this throughout his book. He's holding up true witnesses and false witnesses. 
And if you remember that story, uh, Stephen enters in, he's on trial in front of the Sanhedrin for being a false witness, but he goes from being the defendant to the prosecuting attorney. And he's like, I'm no false witness, you're the false witness. And he flips the script on him. And then he shows us what a true witness does and that he literally gives his life as Jesus did and uses Jesus' own words as stones are coming for his head. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. To the very end, he was a true witness. Well, who had a front row seat? Who was watching this whole scene? You can participate. Paul, at that point, his name was Saul. And then he encountered Jesus, and anybody who truly encounters Jesus does not stay the same. And Paul did not stay the same. Uh, So he becomes Paul, he becomes uh, the missionary to the Gentiles, and now so many years later, I think Paul's doing exactly what Timothy did in that speech. I think Paul is putting himself forward. I call this message, if you find it later online, I call it True Witness 2.0. I think he's saying, just like I saw so long ago and deeply got in my bones when I saw Stephen give his life, like I am now putting myself forward to you, Ephesian church spiritual leaders, as your true witness. This is it. You see me. I think that's what's happening in the passage. Here's what I want us to do as, as, we, as we go through it. And, and additionally, Paul, at, when he writes the letter to the Corinthians, he, he has this really, this line, when you first read it, you're kind of offended by it. But the more I think about it, I think it rings true and resonates. At least I hope it does with you. Paul writes to the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Jesus. You're like, whoa, <laughs> cocky. <laughs> That's what you're thinking, right? But I would put forth to you, and I think this is what Paul's putting forth today, anyone who's following Jesus should be able to say that. And if we're not, it means we have some work to do, some introspection to do. I would just say it like this, a true witness is worth following. A true witness is worth following. So I think Paul's putting himself forward as that example of the true witness. So I want to pray over us, and and here's here's how it's going to go today. Um, I I think Paul is giving us characteristics of true witnesses. I'm going to go through the characteristics, and you're not going to remember all of them. Uh, If you're a note taper, maybe you'll you'll remember all of them, but I want you to to be sensitive to the movement of the Holy Spirit in your life today. And I'm not trying to weird you out. I I think profoundly, if anything good happens today, it'll be because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to listen for the gentle voice of the Holy Spirit as I walk through these characteristics. And I'm betting one or two or multiple ones of, of these characteristics of a true witness will be like, oh, oh, that, <laughs> that, talk to me, Holy Spirit, talk to me. That's what I'm looking for. And then we're going to have an opportunity at the end of the message to kind of work that out a bit. You feeling good? Everybody all right? Yeah. It's an easy assignment, easy assignment. You have to just sit back and be open and vulnerable. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, thank you for your incredible love, and everybody here needs to know that this morning. Regardless of anything else is said or done, uh, we're loved. We're known and loved, and thank you for that. It's a safe place. Uh, thank you for Jesus, who is our model. Those of us who follow him, God, I, just, I think I speak for all of us. We want to be true witnesses. We want to be worth following, not for our own sakes, God, uh, but your, for, for your glory, and for the sake of the world, then only you, only your Holy Spirit can accomplish that. We desperately need you this morning. We pray you'd move, run, run through this place with wildness and, and love and clarity and conviction and hope 
and joy. Do what you want amongst us this morning, God. Have your way with us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. All right, here we go. True witnesses walk the talk. Paul said very first line of his speech. You can look down and if you have your Bibles, he's like, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from day one. Wow. He's basically like, I lived with you. Like, you know what I look like. You know what I smell like. You know my weird laugh. You know that I snore at night. You know, like, you know it all. You watched me when I sinned and when I repented. You watched the pattern of my life. And walking the talk is not being perfect. It's being faithful and following Jesus, even when it's hard all the way to the very end. He's like, you saw me. At the end of his speech, he closes. He's like, you've seen my hands. You watched me work with these hands. I didn't come asking you for anything. I came to live among you and be among you and follow Jesus and represent God. Do you have a question for me? Anybody want to bring anything up? I'm right here. <laughs> like, wow. Like, I don't think I'd want to ask the Rosensteel ladies that question because I think they'd have a long list of things, you know? Like, you know, do you see things in me? Like, yeah, where do we start, Dad? You know? <laughs> Paul's like standing there. He's like, look at me. Like, I've, I've walked the talk. Again, not perfection. Jesus was harshest on his religious uh, opponents who did not walk the talk. He had a word for them, and that word was, you can participate, somebody said it, hypocrites. That's also a Greek term, it simply means the one who wears the mask. And so when, you're, when they acted there, and they had, they had a robust theater there, that one actor would act many characters, and that person would change characters by putting on different masks. So they were pretending to be someone they were not. And that inflamed Jesus, it got him angry, especially for religious leaders. And so Paul's saying, first characteristic of a true witness is that they walk the talk. They are who they appear to be, and there's no weirdness and fake stuff going on. When I was a young man, uh, one of my most formative, formative, formative spiritual uh, uh, teachers, directors, coaches, Disciplers was a man named Jeff. And Jeff led our Youth for Christ. See, I think out here you have Young Life. And I think it was the largest Youth for Christ on the East Coast, if I remember correctly. So it was thriving and fruitful. Jeff was handsome and funny. He was like the Pied Piper of teenagers, and he played guitar. He had it all. <laughs> and so it was like a 13-year-old boy. I just like, like I was coming out from under my parents' leadership. I was trying to decide on for Jesus on my own and kind of like, did I want to follow? And Jeff played a, a demonstrative role in that journey. Jeff chose me and a handful of other students to go on a leadership retreat. We got to travel. We got to stay in a hotel. I was super privileged. And there was one time we were going up to our room and we were about to go up on the elevator and, an, and a woman enters, um, maybe a woman in her 20s. I can't exactly remember, but she was beautiful. And we were 13-year-old boys, and she smelled, I remember she smelled good. And I was like, like, we all just kind of giggled. It was just awkward. Like, imagine an elevator full of 13-year-old boys. We're like, <laughs> she's pretty, you know, just kind of like. And so Jeff's just watching us, and, uh, and she gets off like one or two floors later. And he uses it as any good discipler would as a teaching moment. And he used it to talk to us about how he guards his heart as he's on the road and he's away from his wife and how important that is and how faithfulness is important and on and on and on. I, he had us, we were wrapped attention. Well, it about broke my heart when two months later, my parents shared with me that Jeff had, had been engaged in an ongoing affair with his secretary. 
How do you think that, that hit my heart as a young man? Right? It almost meant I just walked away, because I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> the audacity, and yet that potential's in all of us, let's just be honest, but it about broke my heart. For someone to walk the talk, you can only do that if you're in authentic community, where there's accountability, and there's confession, and there's continual encouragement. You can't fake stuff from a distance relationally. You just can't. It's impossible. Somebody's going to rat you out. There's this, uh, a, a modern example would be, I would call it the pastoral deep fake. Are you familiar with deep fakes? There are these AI-generated videos where you're watching a famous person and they're saying something, but that person never said it. That's how good it is. And only like certain algorithms that you pay a bunch of money for can tell you whether it's a true video or not. It's scary terrain. We're, we're all reading about this stuff. Well, I think there, there's a level of pastoral deep fake that's going on. And what I mean by that, I think a lot of pastors, a lot of maybe celebrity pastors, are pastoring from the green rooms and they're pastoring from the stage and they're pastoring, they don't have any friends, and they don't have any accountability, and they're popular, they're like, and that's just a roadmap to destruction. That's not what it should be. And that's not what it should be for any follower of Jesus. We have to be embedded in deeply authentic, accountable, confessional communities that are supportive. It's the only way it works, it's the only way that saves us uh, from becoming a hypocrite. Now, uh, you know, I'm up on stage a lot here, but I'm like, those of you who know me, I just know that world. Like, I'm about as far away. I'm too old to become a celebrity pastor. So that's just not going to happen. That ship sailed. That's probably God's grace for my life. But it scares me to death, I'll be honest, because I've seen it happen so many times. So uh, I've, please hear me today. I've got tons of brokenness in my life and tons of, of stuff that the Holy Spirit needs to repair every day. But because of this fear of this, like I have made an intentional effort to surround myself with community, accountable, confessional community that's intimate. And I've got, uh, I've got a therapist and I've got a spiritual director. I mean, I got a whole team of people. Look how messed up I am. I've just got all these, I got coaches of galore and I have peers and I have pastor friends that I've invited in to ask me anything. I was texting with a good friend who lives about an, uh, two hours away and uh, he was just asking me how I was doing the other day, and I gave kind of a, a meh response. You know, it wasn't anything much, but he literally texts back, and he's like, do I need to get in the car and come there? I was just like, oh, man. Like, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. And that's the only way we safeguard this thing. That's the only way that we become people that walk the talk, that we surround ourselves with people who love Jesus and will say hard things. So that's the first one. Are we true witnesses? Are we walking the talk? or are we in danger of becoming hypocrites? True witnesses also go low. Paul says at the very beginning, third line, I serve the Lord with great humility. C.S. Lewis calls pride the root of all sin. He says it's the, the anti-God state of mind and that, that all other sins come from pride. In the Hebrew language, uh, it's translated haughty or high-minded. But the word humility in Latin and Hebrew and Greek is translated simply to go low, to go low. And then we have this verse that's repeated again and again in Scripture. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the what? The humble. We don't want God opposing us, I don't think. <laughs> so we see Paul say, like, hey, Here's this key character thing in me that you've seen me. Again, back to like I'm walking the talk. You've seen me. 
and I've conducted myself in a humble way. Again and again and again, I could have gone high, but I went low. And this humility is the very heart of the character of Jesus. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And this is how Jesus describes his own heart, for I am gentle and humble in heart. So Paul's really talking about character. And it was risky for Paul, as it is for anyone who's ministering, anybody that's in the public limelight. If you remember a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at that passage where Paul and Barnabas healed the blind guy, and then the crowd is starting to call them uh, Zeus and Hermes, the gods. Do you remember that story? And uh, it could have been like, you know, I would have been prone to be like, yeah, bring it, worship, worship. Oh, yeah, you're right, go, you know. I mean, that's what's the brokenness that's in us. Do you remember what they did? They ripped their clothes. They ripped their clothes. They couldn't like, no, no. They, it says they ran into the crowd ripping their clothes. And if you remember that message, I had that weird lamp up here the whole time, like being I was messing with it, being in the spotlight, right? That's, that's what we want in our brokenness and our pride. We want the spotlight. Am I, can you see me here? Am I right in it? Like that's what we're always doing in social media, something like that. Well, being humble is turning the spotlight away from ourselves to others and ultimately to God. That's what it looks like. That's what humility looks like. And that's what true witnesses do. It's, they're going to be out there. It's going to be scary for them because they're going to want to turn the spotlight on. That's what their heart, the brokenness of their heart is going to want. But true witnesses go low. They turn the spotlight away. I was hanging out with a leadership coach friend of mine recently. And uh, no hyperbole he, for his job. He's regularly meeting across the country with like Fortune 500 CEOs and their boards and stuff like that. That's what he does. He's really good at it. And he said, John, do you, do you uh, know the best CEOs in the world? Can you name them? And I threw out a few names. I don't know that world very much. I was just kind of like, I don't know, you know. And he's like, no, you don't know them. I'm like, I don't know them, you know. He's like, you don't know them because no one does. He's like, the best CEOs in the world don't go on stages. They don't write books. They're not at conferences. They just humbly do their job. And no one knows who they are. He goes, I want you to be that kind of pastor, John. That's what he said to me straight up. I'm like, okay. It's a little known fact that, that Paul, he, uh, you can't get this from just reading Acts, but Paul, from the road of Damascus to where he really launched his three missionary journeys, he went away for more than 10 years. Remember in that message, I challenged us to practice obscurity. He practiced it. And he went back to his hometown and he learned to mend tents and make tents, and he studied God's word. And he just, he grew in character. And it's been said recently that some of the, the issues in the church are a lot of leaders, and I would say even followers of Jesus, whose charisma outpaces their character. And there's nothing wrong with charisma. That's the Greek word for gifts. We need gifts. Many, all of us are gifted by God. We need that in the church. Nothing wrong with that. But there's a problem when the gifts outpace the character. And Paul's saying, look at me. I conducted myself in a humble way. So true witnesses, are we true witnesses? Do we go low? Are we using our status and our resources and our influence for the good of others? Or are we seeking the spotlight? Are we uh, practicing obscurity? Or are we seeking the spotlight? There's a question for you to ponder. True witnesses are gritty. They're gritty. Angela Duckworth was a New York City teacher she was really compelled by what leads to success amongst her students. And the more she looked, she didn't think that it was the family of origin. She didn't think even how good a family it was, or she didn't think it was even their intellect. And she just had this hunch. 
And so she actually quit her job, went away, got her PhD in psychology to study this very question. She's now a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania. And she's written this book called Grit. And she has this TED Talk that's been viewed like six million times. And her hunch was right. Her hunch was what leads to success is grit or perseverance. They studied, uh, her team studied uh, West Point cadets, uh, salesmen, thousands of kids in the Pennsylvania school district, spelling bee champions, on and on and on and on. And what they found is it was always one part talent to two parts grit. And here's how she defines grit. Passion and sustained persistence towards long-term achievement with no particular concerns for rewards or recognitions along the way. If you're young, under 20 in this room, listen, listen, right? You got certain gifts God's given you, but at the end of the day, if you're gonna be successful in life, if you're gonna be the person God's created you to be, you're gonna have to learn perseverance and grit. You have to be a grinder, as they say in the sports world. Uh, Paul tells the Ephesian church, he says, look, like, I've been taking it from both sides for 20 years. Just, I got opponents coming at me from every which way. And Paul says that the Holy Spirit told him, Paul, when you go into each new town, you're gonna face suffering and hardship and prison. Can you imagine that assignment from God? Hey, so I want you to take the gospel in each new town and each town suffering and hardship and prison, go get them. And Paul's like, yes, yes. Not because he's a sadist, because he so deeply believed in the good news of King Jesus that he gave his life to it. And he's like, you cannot shake me. Remember that story a couple weeks ago where Paul gets stoned and then he pops up like a cartoon character and just walks right back into town? It's like, what is going on? I mean, that's Acts for one, but that's grit. And now he's going to Jerusalem where he knows he's gonna die. And just like his King Jesus, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. He's undeterred. True witnesses that understand this, true witnesses that are gritty. See, we live in a world where we approach suffering and we try to do everything we can to evade it. And that's understandable in a certain, in a certain degree. I, I get that. Everybody, should, we shouldn't be seeking suffering out. But we, we, we think our life's coming apart or everything's over if we have any hardship. We can't make it through life like this. We live in a broken world. It's not if suffering comes, it's when. And people that are gritty, people that are true witnesses of King Jesus begin to see in time that when suffering comes, they begin to see it as like a gymnasium that can work themselves into this deep love relationship with God that they reach into places they never knew they could access in the heart of God. I'll challenge you this. Think about people in your life that exude Jesus. You know who they are. When you're around them, they just leak Jesus. Like, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm in the presence of someone who's holy. And then ask them their story. I 100% guarantee you they've had a hard life. And yet they begin to see it, you know, not that they're seeking it, but they begin to see it as a place that God can form them in a deeper way as a true witness. I'm not just making this up. James, the brother of Jesus says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, as a quick aside, please, please, please don't go up to someone who's encountered suffering and 
pat him on the back and say, consider it pure joy, my brother, because they'll punch you in the face. And, you know, it's not going to go well, and that's horrible. And I see too many Christians doing that. That's not what I'm saying. They have, to, they have to figure that out. Or open the conversation to you. And that'll happen in time. You'll know it. But that, that like, the grittiness that's come is like, Paul's like, I'm not, I'm not scared of that anymore. Like, I've been stoned and whipped and beaten and shipwrecked and imprisoned. You had that one, the pastor would just list all of me like, oh, my gosh. It's like, it's all good. It's all good. Are we true witnesses? When the going gets tough, will we bail? Or will we be faithful to the end? Because God never bails on us. True witnesses are givers, not takers. Every pastor scandal I hear about is about a pastor taking something that isn't his or hers. Another person's body, money, power. It's always people that have become, for some reason, that are supposed to be givers and they become takers. Paul tells the Ephesian church leaders to be shepherds of the church of God. First of all, it's not your church is what he's telling them. It's not your church. It's God's church. You just get to steward it for a little bit. And here's how you steward. And he gives this this metaphor of shepherding, which doesn't hit us because most of us don't shepherd. Some of you in here do some work with livestock and know that world. Most of us don't. It would have absolutely hit with them. Everywhere they looked, they would have seen sheep and shepherds. And they would have known sheep are the stupidest animals on the face of the earth. <laughs> I mean, sheep, literally, their stories of like walking off a cliff, and then they go, they just follow each other off the cliff in a line. Just like, bah, bah, straight up. And then they get cast down. They get flipped over with their big, you know, and, and then there's prey to anybody. So the shepherd, like, literally keeps them alive, takes them to clean water, gives them food, protects them. That's the imagery, and that imagery is used throughout Scripture. The prophets accessed it a lot, talking about the leaders of the nation of Israel, to be good shepherds, not bad shepherds. They would have known this. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd does what? Look what he says, lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep, so when he sees the wolf coming, he runs, he abandons. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. Paul's like, don't. Don't be doing that. Your life as a shepherd, your life as a follower of Jesus is to be a giver and not a taker. Paul got so worked up, he, this is a literal quote from Paul that we heard earlier. I consider my life as worth nothing to me. This is not apathy. This is not nihilism. This is Paul being a true witness of Jesus who himself said in Luke 9, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life from me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very soul? And then Paul's very last words, these dear, dear friends, these, uh, these folks that would shape the early church with their influence. His last words to them was a quote from Jesus, and we only find this quote from Jesus here in Acts. It's in none of the Gospels. And Paul says he wanted them to remember the words of Jesus. It was his last words. Of course he thought about what he wanted to say. He said, I want you to remember the words of our King Jesus, that it is more blessed to give than receive. And when, we, when this word remember was used in the ancient Near East, it didn't mean cognitive memory. I mean, it meant that, but that was only a piece of the word. It meant like, I want you to remember it in your bones. I want you to reenact it. I want you to bring it to life. I want you to show people what it looks like. 
I want you as leaders of the church to give your life away. True witnesses are givers and not takers. My friend Paul Pastor, he's a poet, uh, highly recommend his work. Uh, He said the other day, uh, we ought to all grow, and he means followers of Jesus, we ought to all grow until we become all gift. Until we become all gift. Love that. Finally, true witnesses focus on what matters most. Paul says uh, in his speech, I consider my life worth nothing to me. And then look what he says. My only aim, not here's one of my five goals for the year. Not here's what I might do or I'm going to do this along with it. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace, that's it. A couple weeks ago, I, I, I talked about my desire for our church to be centered on the good news of King Jesus above all else. And if we're centered there, we will hold together in a world coming apart. If we're focused like a laser on that, if we get sidetracked and we center our church or our lives on other things, we're gonna be a hot mess in no time. And I use the example of a merry-go-round. If you stand in the middle of a merry-go-round spinning and you're centered, you can raise your hands in the air and dance like you just don't care because you're not, nothing's going to move. You're just, it's perfect, right? But the more you move to the edge and you center your life or your church on things that you shouldn't, the force, it's a physics principle, will flip you off. You won't be able to hold. And Paul's like, I am centered. I am focused. You know how you have words for the year? That's a new hot thing. My, my word for the year is focus. I've had too many of my good friends and all of my family tell me they think I'm distracted. So I think I'm trying to listen to that. Be like, what's going on there? Uh, I don't want to be distracted. One study recently revealed that, that 50% of the time our minds are wandering. So half of you just didn't hear what I said. <laughs> I should do a quiz. But isn't that like crazy? Like when you're talking to someone and that's absolutely true of me. Like we're, we're, we've been called the distracted generation. There's so many noises and choices and screens clamoring for our attention. It's so hard to focus on what matters much, and we end up focusing our lives on stuff we shouldn't. Then on our deathbeds, when we look back and we're able to reflect on our deathbeds, we'll be like, what? I don't want to be like that. I want to look back and be like, yes. I focused on what mattered most. I want to look back and be like, I should not have watched that Netflix series for the third time. (laughs) Focus. I learned recently the the etymology of the word focus comes from the Latin word hearth. And in the first century Roman homes, the hearth was the center of everything. It's where you cooked. It's where you slept at night to stay warm. It's where the family gathered to play games and talk. And I started, as I was journaling, I started asking myself the question, because focus is my word this year, what do I want to gather my life around? What do I want to gather my life? It can't be too many things. What are we gathering our lives around? Is it worth our attention? That word attention has the word tendon in it. It means to stretch. What are we stretching our lives towards? We have limited resources, limited. What are we stretching those things to? So here's a prayer for us from Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me, I love this, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. 
And fearing the Lord just means taking God seriously. Give me an undivided heart so I can take God seriously. I don't want to mess around anymore. I want to take God seriously. And Paul is a true witness show that. Jim Collins is a leadership guru. He's written all these best-selling books, and he's advised probably most of the most successful companies in the world. Years ago, his team, he's got a pretty big team, uh, they decided to use all these relationships for research. And uh, Jim was really... uh, intent on finding what made up the best leaders in the business world, in the church world, in the sports world. So they had this elaborate system of studying success, and they got it down to essentially uh, three top principles. And it's amazing what they are. The first one he said, he calls them level five leaders. He goes, the best leaders in church world, business world, sports world are leaders first that have remarkable humility. Secondly, they have incredible drive or grit. And three, I bet you can guess it, they're focused. They're focused. Wow, shocking that Scripture's right. As I said, the, I, I don't know, I can't remember if I said last service this one, but like I, I, my intent today is not to bash pastors. I am one. Uh, not to bash followers of Jesus. I love you. Uh, it's to bring greater accountability like what we're doing is really, really important. And life's going by super fast. And we need places that we lovingly hold ourselves in confessional communities accountable to becoming the people that God created us to be, to be true witnesses. The world desperately needs to see that. They're going to look away if they see hypocrisy. They're going to look towards our Lord if they see true witnesses. Because we'll reflect our Lord and the goodness and grace of our Lord. And for every knuckleheaded pastor or knuckleheaded follower of Jesus, and I fit that description some days, that are misbehaving in the name of Jesus, I promise you, maybe this isn't your experience, but I promise you this is mine, there's 20, 30, 50, 100 faithful, incredible, gritty, loving, gracious followers of Jesus and pastor. I promise you that. And I kind of wanted to, to, to end before we go to our, our little experience here by, by telling you about one of them. It's not somebody that I know personally, but she, she continues to shape my life in, in unexpected ways, and her name's Beth Moore. Do you guys know Beth a little bit? Whoa, fan club. Uh, Beth, uh, she, she, uh, she was in the Southern Baptist denomination for many years. She, she just left. She was a Bible teacher, predominantly of women. Uh, but I, I, I Googled this before this illustration. She has sold uh, 18.5 million Bible studies. You could, you could make the statement, I think it would be accurate, that she is the most popular and influential Bible teacher in our lifetime. And so I'm reading her new memoir, and it's really hard to read and really beautiful, and I challenge you to read it. She, she was abused by her dad. Uh, her mom had severe mental illness. Uh, she just, you look at Beth with the blonde hair and the Southern vibes and the, you know, old golly demeanor, and you just think, that woman's had an easy life. She did not have an easy life. And, and it, it's an incredible story, so I encourage you to read it. Um, I'm most impressed with Beth. I don't do much social media, but I follow a few people on Twitter that I respect. So I started following her, and I can't tell you the ugly things people say about her, predominantly because she's a woman who teaches the Bible. It's ridiculous. But I watch her kind of, it's a, it's a master class in how to be a true witness with your enemies. Because I'll, I'll, I'll get lost in the comments, and I get so angry. I just want to reach out to these people and strangle them in the name of Jesus, if that's a thing. <laughs> 
And yet Beth has this self-deprecating, good faith, like it's not, it's, it's legitimate. You just have to see it. And she's so funny that you can't help but like, you know, and so like just watching her be a true witness, like we need Beth Moores. We need them leading the way and, and showing us. So she, her, her memoir is just released. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts with her because she's kind of talking about it a good bit. And and I, I know uh, at least two people, I don't, as I said, I don't know her, but I know at least two people that not only know her, but know her really well and like have done, have done work with her long term and like have eaten many meals with her. And, know, and I always get really nervous when I find out about these connections because the question I want to ask, I'm not sure if I want to ask it. And I have asked it to both these people. I, I took up the courage to do it. And the question is, please tell me she's the real deal. Please tell me. The behind the scenes, she's not a monster, right? And they're like, oh, John, she's the real deal. And I tell you, like, there's so many men and women following Jesus that are that way, I promise you. And we could be some of those people by God's grace, amen? We could be true witnesses. So here's what I, I felt led to do when I was going through this passage. I felt led to do it, so now you have to do it. That's just kind of how it works around here. <laughs> I felt led to do confession. And for some of you, that's like heart palpitations and there's trauma there and I wanna, I wanna honor that. Here's, here's what I wanna say. Let me say a couple things about confession. Confession has become one of the most beautiful practices for me. And it's not about shame, it's not about guilt. God doesn't do that. Our team this morning as we gathered for prayer, I read to them Psalm 139. It was part of the, 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 the lectionary today, the, the Bible reading that millions do around the world. And uh, the writer of that psalm is essentially saying uh, that you're known and you're loved. Isn't that what we all want? Because here's the deal in my life. Like, I'm not sure I want to be really known because I'm not sure then people will love me. So you play it safe and you hold your cards back, right? And then we have secrets that corrode us and crush us and make us less than we're meant to be. Because we're not all who we're meant to be yet. That's just the truth. We're all works in progress. And so confession is the ancient practice of the church to flush it out. So like the psalmist is sorting through that, like I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And you know a word before it's on my tongue and you know a thought before it's in my head. And that's kind of freaks you out when you think about that. That's God. And yet you love me. You love me. And we're all runners. We all run. We all run from God. That's part of our brokenness. And God runs after us and keeps coming. And so at the end, there's last two verses, but once the psalmist realizes he's known and loved, the psalmist says, search me, oh my God. Search me and see if there's any offensive way in me. But he doesn't say it with shame or fear. He says it with freedom and love. And that's what I want to offer you this morning as a gift. And uh, you don't have to do it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. But it's an invitation. I think if you, if you take it seriously and you open yourselves up to the Holy Spirit, it can be remarkable and beautiful. And so here's, uh, it's important to kind of go through logistics as that gets people nervous. I want to make sure you know kind of what we're inviting you to. Confession is really simple, and we want you to carry this practice into your daily life, but you ask the Holy Spirit to show you if there's any offensive way in you, any sin. Just you make yourself, you just open up. Kind of like think of your heart as kind of like a window that can open up out. You just open, like, come on in. Just show me. I don't know. I hide things. I got secrets. Show me. I don't want them. I want, I want you to come in. You love me. So that's the first step. And then when you see it, you just say, will you forgive me? Because Jesus took all that. He's already, he's already paid for it. It's already done. And, and then you say, thanks. Thanks for that. And then you don't have to carry that burden into your life. 
and there's more open access to the good and beautiful Holy Spirit in your life, making you more who you're created to be. That's how it's meant to be. That's how it's meant to work. And so uh, I love embodied things. And when you came in, you should have gotten a little slip of paper. And this is important. You can't just use your paper, a little slip of paper and a pen. So if you didn't get that, there's a lot of people in here, but raise your hand. We'll get you somebody that's going to bring you one because you'll need that for this. And the, the little cool magic trick with that piece of paper is that it dissolves. And so uh, we're going to give you some space, some quiet here in just a second uh, for you to do that if you feel led, asking the Holy Spirit in. This quiet is space. It's a gift. I hope you feel that. And then if you hear something, you see it, and maybe it's tied to one of those five things that we went through, then you just say, I'm sorry. Make that right in me. And you have Jesus, and you are. Thank you. And then whatever you feel led to write that maybe, maybe uh, represents the thing that the Holy Spirit graciously saw you. And then as you come up to the communion table, because how cool is it to come to the communion table to celebrate the heart of God for us and also being free of the things that we've seen in our lives that are broken. And you just drop it right in that water. And I think it's a really cool effect. It just disappears. And that's what Psalm 51 says. That's what David says. He goes, you wipe away my blemish. You take my stain on my clothes. You make it white as snow. It's like a really dirty person getting in a hot bath. You scrub me down and I come out clean. That's the imagery that I think this evokes. And so then at the table, there'll be a prayer at the end of communion that, that your, your communion leader uh, will read over you. Also, uh, as you go through this time, we'll have silence, but there'll be a prayer up here. This is from the Book of Common Prayer, and some of you may not be familiar with it, but uh, millions upon millions across the world use the Book of Common Prayer. When I'm having a good day and, I, and I'm on my game, uh, I try to start my day with this and end my day with this. The Book of Common Prayer uses the same prayer at the beginning of every day and at the end of every day. My favorite line, if you care to know, is, and apart from your grace, there is no health in us. Ah, so true. And it's God's grace to make us well and make us fully human, the people we are created to be. How are we doing? We doing all right? Okay. So we're going to give you space and silence. And for some of you that you probably haven't had silence, who knows? And you're welcome. It'll be a gift for you. And then, uh, and then our team uh, will, will come up. And most of the time when we open the communion table, especially you type A folks, you just bum rush the communion tables. You got to get it done. And so just kind of settle in. Just open yourself up. All, you don't have to do anything. All you got to do is be vulnerable. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we know you're here. We don't have to invite you in. You're here. Your people are gathered. This is your church, Jesus. You're, you're our head. We're just your body. And we want to be true witnesses. We don't want to be false witnesses. We don't want to be hypocrites. We want people to be able to look at our lives because of your grace, through the power of your Holy Spirit, and get a taste of what it is to follow you and know you, to experience your character and your love and your goodness. Help us, God. And in all of us, I mean, the scriptures say all of us possess sin in our lives. No one is without sin. So if there's anybody in here, God, that thinks they can skip this, and that they don't need it today, lovingly they're wrong, and I pray that you would turn their hearts. There are people that, that, that right now don't want to do this. They're annoyed to have to do this, and I pray you'd soften their hearts and help us to see the beauty of what it is to come clean and to be invited and to a new level of being known and a new experience of being loved as well. So have your way with us, Holy Spirit. Run wild in this place. Do what you want to do in your people. Make us the people that you created us to be. Uh, for your glory and for the sake of the world.
We pray this in the matchless name of our King Jesus and all God's people said, 